If you have a Bible, please take it and turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew 6, as we begin uh, a series of sermons considering the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Andrew and I recently, with some friends, had a discussion, and the question that brought up the discussion was, what skill or ability would you like to have that you currently do not have? Something you'd like to be able to do that you're currently not good at. The conversation that followed touched on things like cooking, uh, writing, interior design, painting, and even cheese making was mentioned, believe it or not. Maybe something else comes to your mind. Maybe kids, you could think about if you could have a skill at anything, what, what might it be? What would you want to be really good at? Maybe, um, maybe there's a sport that you'd like to be really good at. You just be, want to be the best in the world at a sport. Or maybe you, you want to be a skilled artist or, or something else. Adults, maybe you're more practical. You said, I just like to be good at managing my money. I'd like that really strong skill in that. Or I'd like to be good at, at home repairs. You know, when something breaks, I could just fix everything in my house. <laughs> what if I asked you a similar question about your Christian life? And I said, what, what area of your walk with Jesus would you like to be more consistent in? Where would you like to see exponential growth in your faith? I imagine that if we had that conversation that sooner or later, all of us would probably speak of a desire to grow in our prayer lives. Because prayer is something that we know is vital, that we believe is supernatural, and yet it's, it's difficult and it's often neglected in our lives. And while I can't magically make you more committed to prayer uh, in one sermon or even in a series of seven, I have no doubt that if we, if we long to grow in our prayer, prayer lives, there are few better places to turn to than to the Lord's Prayer, which is found at the center of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13. Having just studied the first 18 verses of chapter 6, we know that the instruction that surrounds these verses, that surrounds the Lord's Prayer, it's teaching us this. In your personal righteousness, seek the praise and glory of God more than you crave the applause of people. So we've been thinking about that for the past three weeks. In your personal righteousness, in our personal righteousness, we're seeking the praise of God more than the praise and the applause of other people. We're doing it in secret because we care about what God thinks more than anything else. We saw two weeks ago that as opposed to the prayers of the Pharisees and the Gentiles, the prayers of God's people are to be sincere, not self-seeking. They are to be thoughtful, not thoughtless. And in these emphases, Jesus is calling us, as he does throughout the Sermon on the Mount, to, to wholeness, to wholeheartedness in our prayers. The way we speak to the, to the Father is not to be the stuff of, of religious formalism. Rather, as Jonathan Pennington writes, he says, Jesus' teaching on prayer is a call for simplicity over rhetoric, for clarity over piled-up repetition. And in these ways, Jesus is emphasizing that prayer is meant to lead us into true and deep communion with the Father. That's also the goal of the Lord's Prayer. Simplicity and clarity that leads to true and deep communion with the Father. Jesus tells all we who are his followers to avoid pharisaical prayers offered primarily for prideful reasons. And we're to avoid worldly, worldly prayers that approach God as some sort of capricious and, and fickle God that has to be convinced to listen to us. 
And instead, he teaches us how to pray in a way that avoids both of those pitfalls. As we study the Lord's Prayer, we're going to see that it is both a form of and a pattern for prayer. It can be, it can be a prayer that we pray with sincerity and thought, adding no additional words to it. Or it can be a way to frame our prayers where we meditate on the, the truths that are in it and the petitions that are in it. We might recite the Lord's Prayer every morning. We might recite it every evening. We could say it with our family. We could say it during our, our church services. Or we might use its petitions as sort of guardrails to guide our speaking to the Father, expounding on the requests that we find here in it. However we use the, the Lord's Prayer, the truth that's found in the Lord's Prayer should shape every prayer that we pray. And today we're, we're going to simply think about the opening words of the prayer, Our Father in heaven. And then the next six weeks, we're going to think about the six petitions of this prayer. So this weekend and coming weeks, I want us to read these words together. But before we do that, just some notes on structure so you can follow along as you read it. As I said, there's, there's six petitions, and they're divided into two groups with a, a focus on God's concerns in the first three petitions and a focus on what concerns us as human beings in the final three petitions. That division recalls, maybe you might think of this, the, the Ten Commandments. You remember the first table of the Ten Commandments has to do primarily with loving God. And the second table is more focused on loving our neighbor. Matthew may also be recalling a theme from his gospel. Namely, he talks a lot about the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. And prayer is concerned with both of these realms, as well as with how heaven might come to earth. So thinking about that division, let's read the Lord's Prayer together. Um, if you have a bulletin, it's on the front of your bulletin. If you have an ESV, you can just read it straight out of there. Um, Jesus introduces it in verse 9 by saying, Pray then like this. And let's read these words of the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. My kids started to say that last part. It, it's not there. That's okay. <laughs> We've been saying the Lord's Prayer for a while, and we have the, we'll talk about why that's not here uh, eventually. Uh, how you start something often shapes everything that, that follows. So the, the way that you begin lays a path for how you're going to finish. Think about your day, how you start your day. How do you start your day? Does it begin with focus and with, and with purpose, or does it begin in some other way? I know I've been guilty of making the first act of my day hitting the snooze button. So right from the beginning, I'm already procrastinating. Uh, you might think about this idea of how you start determines where you're going to go. I think about cutting my grass. If you start a, a new row when you're cutting your grass, pushing your mower along, or maybe you're riding along, if you, if you fail to line up correctly and start at the right angle uh, with, the, with the line that you had just mowed, then you're going to end up at the wrong spot and you're going to miss a bunch of your grass and it's just going to, going to look bad. And depending on the neighborhood you're in, you, your grass has got to look good. You can talk to Mark about that. I've heard that's adult peer pressure is when your neighbor mows the lawn, it's time for you to mow the lawn too. <laughs> but how you start determines how you're going to end. So before any petition is made, Jesus instructs us on, 
on how we are to begin our prayers. And we're to begin with these words, our Father in heaven. In this, I think Jesus is saying this to us. This is our big idea. Ground your prayers in who God is and who he has made us to be. Ground your prayers. I mean, make the foundation of your prayers. Ground your prayers in who God is and who he has made us to be. Now, as we begin, know that these words of, of the, the, the Lord's Prayer, they're not a formula that has to be followed. They're not a secret password that opens up God's ears. Rather, these words express a uniquely Christian frame of mind that shapes how we are going to proceed in prayer. They ground us in a proper place as they call us to a right way of thinking about who God is and who we are. And that's what I want us to think about today. In light of God's fatherhood and who he is, and all that he is, who, who is God and who are we? Those are your two points for today. We'll have some underneath those, but let's begin by considering who God is. Who God is. Of course, God is many things beyond what's conveyed in the words, uh, our Father in heaven. We often shorten that to heavenly Father. Um, but here, Jesus calls us specifically to remember, first of all, when we think about who God is, that he is our Father. He is our Father. The Sermon on the, 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 the Lord's Prayer doesn't begin by saying our King, even though God is a King. It doesn't begin by saying our friend, even though God is said to be our friend. It begins by saying our Father. Who is God? He is our Father. There, there are hints of the fatherhood of God in the Old Testament, especially in terms of God's relationship to Israel, who he refers to as his son. But there's a unique focus and emphasis in the ministry of Jesus and in, the, in the New Testament Christianity on the fact that God is our father. As J.I. Packer has written, and as I've often quoted, father is the Christian name for God. But before we consider what the word father calls to mind in relation to God, we should acknowledge that there are many for whom the word or the concept of father doesn't bring positive thoughts to mind. Your father may have been overly harsh or demanding. He could have been angry, even abusive. He could have been weak. He could have been aloof. He could have simply just not been around at all. Father is a word that carries a lot of baggage. Father is a word that may bring up some wounds in your life. But I don't think that's a reason to abandon this word. Rather, when we think about our Heavenly Father, we can take all of the praiseworthy pieces of our earthly fathers, as well as all the ways that we wish our fathers had acted. And for some of us, we can even think about the kind of father that, that we want to be. And from all of those pieces, we can form a picture of true and complete fatherhood. And then we can rest in the fact that God is the perfect father. He's better than our fathers were on their best days. And he's opposite, the opposite of what our fathers were on their worst days. That's the father that we come to. Specifically, as we pray the words, our father, we're saying a few things, three things. We're saying first that he is personal. When we, when we say he is our father, we're saying he is personal. Speaking on these words of, of the Lord's Prayer, Tim Keller says that there are basically two kinds of relationships in society, business and personal. You might think about those different relationships in your own life. What are the business relationships? What are the personal relationships in your, own, in your life? And think about the stress that comes when a personal relationship has an element of business to it or vice versa. 
when you hire a friend and things don't go the way you expected, or when you hang out at a birthday party with your boss. It's always a little bit different when those worlds collide. The Gentiles or the pagans, as we have seen, they prayed, but they prayed to God as if it was a business relationship. They were removed from him and they only sought to gain what they desired through their words. Their their prayers were cold and impersonal. They were cold and impersonal. Think about that. When we pray prayers that are cold and impersonal, when our prayers are formulaic and impersonal, we show that we're treating God like we're in a business relationship with him, that it's a transaction of some kind that we're making. But Jesus wants us to see that God is our father and therefore prayer is personal. It's relational. And the basis of it, of it is rooted not in paperwork, not in contracts, not in your performance, but the basis of our, our prayers is in the blood of Jesus. It's in the relationship that we have. It's in unbreakable covenant. So our God's not a combination lock that we break open with the right words said the right way. He's not a boss. He's not a landlord. Rather, as he relates to us on a deeply personal level, like a good father, he wants to hear from us. He wants to celebrate with us. He wants to grieve with us. Simply wants to spend time with us. So when we address God as father, we are reminded first that he is personal. Second, that he is loving. He is loving. When we know that someone loves us, we approach them in a very different way, don't we? And God says that John is love, and, and, and God says John <laughs> is love itself. He has loved us through the sending of his son. Fathers sometimes can be scary. They can be cold. I know that because I'm a father. But our God is loving He's ready to to draw near to us in prayer and to hear our requests with a a desire to do what's going to bring us the most joy. He's a a good and a loving father. The sending of Jesus reveals that love, doesn't it? Despite our rebellion against God and his ways, he has pursued us by sending his son to save us. Jesus lived a a, a life of perfect dependence on the father all the way to his death on the cross. And through Jesus's crucifixion and resurrection, we who repent and believe in Christ as Lord and Savior can be saved. We're welcomed into the same relationship with the Father that Jesus himself modeled for us throughout his life. Jesus has shown us the personal, loving relationship that we can have with God. And he has also made that relationship possible through his finished work. When we pray our Father... We are grounding our prayer in the truth that God, the truth that God is personal, that he is loving. And finally, that he is to be honored. He is to be honored. Uh, We must be careful that seeing God as personal and love as a personal and loving father does not reduce him to someone that we would approach flippantly. I think there's a desire in our day, which there could be some positive aspects to it, but there's a desire in our day for, for parents to be more like best friends with their children than an authority figure of any kind. But the concept of father, especially in the ancient world, again, according to to Dr. Pennington, it would have communicated both respectful dependence and affectionate intimacy, as well as obedience, intimacy and awe, familial comfort and reverent respect. 
So when we come to God as our father, we, we know that he is personal and loving. We know that he is for us, seeking our good, but we also honor his place of authority over us and we submit to him with reverence and, and with awe. So who is God? How do we frame our understanding of him as we pray? First, he is our father, which means that he's personal, he's loving, he's to be honored. And second, when we think about who God is, we say he is in heaven. He is in heaven. He is our, our heavenly father. Kids, I don't know if you've had this argument with other kids, but I remember a classic playground argument was whose dad was better, uh, whose dad was stronger, or more respected or, or richer, you know, whatever you could come up with as a kid. Just think how easily you could win that game if your dad was like a president or a king. You're on the playground and you say, yeah, my dad's the prime minister of India. I mean, nobody can beat that. It's kind of game over, right? To say that our Father is in heaven is to remind ourselves just how strong and how great God is. It's to remember his power and his authority. It's to recall that this personal and loving Father that we come to is also the creator and the ruler over all things. Therefore, we can come to him in the knowledge that whatever we ask of him, he can do it. As the kid's song says, you guys know this song? My God is so big, so strong and so mighty. There's nothing my God cannot do for you. <laughs> or maybe you prefer John Newton's words. Newton wrote, thou art coming to a king. Large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such. None can ever ask too much. So we pray to our heavenly father because the, the truths behind these words remind us who God is. And John Stott says, it's always wise before we pray to spend time deliberately recalling who God is. Only then shall we come to, him, to our loving father in heaven with appropriate humility, devotion, and confidence. So these words reveal who God is, but they also reveal who we are who we are. To call God our Father not only says something about who He is, but it communicates who we understand ourselves to be. Now surely it reminds us that we are children of God through faith in Jesus. And it says that we should let this reality shape our lives. Who are you? You're a child of God. So pray like one. Pray like a child of God. Don't pray like you're in a business relationship. Pray like you're in a personal, loving relationship with the Father. To put a twist on an old phrase, when it comes to prayer, it's not business, it's personal. God is not a stranger. He's our Father. As we consider who we're praying to our Father, uh, that we're praying to our Father in heaven, we could also go back to the Exodus where God says through Moses to Pharaoh, Pharaoh that Israel is his, is his firstborn son. Therefore, he must let them go. There, God is calling his children out of slavery and into freedom and sonship. N.T. Wright says of this, when Jesus tells his disciples to call God Father then, those with ears to hear will understand. He wants us to get ready for the new exodus. We are going to be free at last. The very first word of the Lord's Prayer therefore contains within it not just intimacy, but revolution. Not just familiarity, but hope. We see this picture then, and we suddenly find that praying to God as our Father is not as individualistically focused as we have often thought. Because if we call God Father, then that means we're part of something, something bigger. We're part of a family. 
part of a people that have been called out of darkness, called out of slavery, called into light and freedom. That's who we are. Part, we are part of God's church. We are part of God's building. We are part of his body whom, of whom Christ is the head. We're part of something revolutionary in the world. And so we come to that little word, O-U-R, R. To pray our Father is to remember who we are, that we are part of the scattered people of God who have been brought near by the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The word R pushes us into a corporate community-focused identity, even when we're praying by ourselves. God's people have always been a people that are defined more collectively than individualistically. The most repeated prayer of the Old Testament that Mark read for us, it emphasizes that same thing right at the beginning. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, our God, is one. God's people have always been thought of in collective terms. When you're asked the question, who are you? I don't know about you, but I, I respond in very personally focused answers. But Jesus wants us to shape our lives and our prayers around the fact that we are part of his kingdom. The revolutionary nature of praying our father is that we are affirming that the most important part of our identity is not our biological family or our job. The most important part of who we are is not our hometown. It's not our education. The most important part of who you are is not your favorite sports team or your hobbies. It's who we are as members of God's covenant people. The Christian answers the question, who are you? A little, a little awkwardly. If someone says, who are you? If you're a Christian, you should say, we are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. There's a collective identity to who you are at your core. Well, how we start the Lord's Prayer is in some ways a declaration of how we want the prayer to shape us. It shapes who we understand God to be and who we understand ourselves to be as members of his kingdom. To pray, our Father who art in heaven, or to simply say, Heavenly Father. That's, it, it's to affirm that our God is personal and powerful, that he's loving and he is to be honored. It's to say that we are fundamentally children of God and that we are part of God's redeemed and liberated people together set loose in the world to image our Father to all people. So ground your prayers in who God is and who he has made us to be. Let, it, let these words, our Father in heaven, remind you who he is and who we are as his people. This kind of prayer, it's unique in the world. It's, it's different from any other kind of prayer. And only we who are children of God through faith in Jesus can pray our Father in heaven. So let's not neglect this blood-bought privilege that Jesus has given to us. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, what a wonder that you have made we who were so far from you, your children. You have made us a part of your family through Jesus, our elder brother. And we come to you as those who have been set free from slavery and called to image you in this world. Thank you that we can come to you as a father who loves and cares for us, as a father who is worthy of our honor and our respect, and as a Father who is powerful enough to do whatever we ask of you. Lord, make us people of prayer. And make us people who ground our prayers in who you are 
and who you have made us to be. Ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.